five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. And welcome back into the Bama on three show. This is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Jimmy Stein. Jimmy, how are we doing on this Monday morning following a 49-27 Iron Bowl victory for Alabama? Uh, Good, good. I'm sort of uh, ready to move into uh, roster season. That's what I'm going to start. You know, the calendar in football, Clint, has changed so much to where, like, who would have thunk years ago if you told me probably the biggest recruiting month now is June I would have said, that's impossible. That's crazy. But that is literally the case now. Uh, now, because of the portal window that's going to open next Monday, one week from today, combined with signing day just 16 days later, December is basically the month that your roster for next season is completely made over all in a month. Uh, as many as 30, 30-plus 30 players coming and going, maybe more. I'm ready for that month just because we've never seen it before. It's going to be new. It's going to be shocking. And let me tell you, it's going to lead to a lot of thrills and and probably a lot of disappointments too. Yeah, you got guys who are going to be entering. A lot of them will be expected for a place like Alabama. I don't think there will be too many that's just completely shocking, but there will be a couple that really surprises some people. You know, I think that if fans would have realized the role that Alabama had envisioned for Drew Sanders – then they would have been a lot more shocked than they were when he did enter. You know, everybody kind of looked at that and thought, with the way things ended, he wasn't playing a whole lot of snaps when he came back from his injury. Dallas Turner was doing some really good things, eight and a half sacks. You had Will Anderson coming back. It's like, okay, we get it. Uh, But, you know, he would have been very involved. And there will be some impactful players, I almost guarantee you, that will be leaving uh, or guys who could have made a pretty big impact. I don't know who those guys will be, but they also – you know, Alabama will be targeting some guys who can come in and make a huge difference, like, uh, you know, Jamison Williams, like uh, Henry Toto, like a Jameer Gibbs. And so, that you know, the, the portal works both ways. And something that I brought up on the message board last night, and I wanted to get your take on it, because I do find it really interesting. When you think about leadership and, and how you build it through your roster, Alabama has always had, really since the, those Julio days, like they came in, they had the right mentality, and they kind of started building the correct culture. And as younger players continue to kind of transition in, they would watch those older guys like the Julios do it the right way. They watched them go through the process. Now, Julio was a guy who's an immediate starter. He's not necessarily that guy, even though you watched a guy who did it the right way, who didn't you know, think he was above anything. I think that was very important as well. But, you know, even guys like Reuben Foster, you know, if you come in after him, you watched that he had to wait his turn to become this superstar. You watched him, you know, display patience. Really, all these good habits from your leadership group because it's been groomed through the process or the Alabama way. Now, with the transfer portal, you're adding what is expected to be leaders. Like, you know, uh, Henry Toto, he comes in and he becomes almost an immediate leader. But he hadn't been processed yet. He hadn't gone through that himself. And so him trying to teach the younger guys, the freshmen, how to – go about it and do it the Alabama way when you haven't really gone through that process and you've already earned that leadership role without having to have done that. Can that make, it's not necessarily that it's bad, even though I don't think it's good either. It it just makes your leadership build of your roster different than it was before. Do you think that that is in fact uh, the case uh, or a possibility 
And if so, how much do you think that, that affects, you know, the leadership group and the way the roster dynamic works? Well, it all it all makes me think this right off. And I think you're on to something because th- I thought going into this year, when you looked at Ed Henry and even Jermaine Burton, you know, who was a new guy who was assumed to be wide receiver one, he sort of probably ended the season that I guess if you were saying if we had a wide receiver one, it probably was Burton at one point, it looked like Brooks, maybe as Burton. But my point is, I thought he would be a leader of the wide receiver group. He was brand new. He earned nothing. But, and Henry was sort of a day one leader. I'm not sure that's good uh, because when I look back on this season, I thought the leadership would be really strong, like one of our great leadership teams ever with, with Bryce and Will, you know, Bryce leading the offense, Will leading the defense. Again, new faces, Henry on defense, kind of new. Jermaine Burton, brand new, leading the wide receiver room. When you watch the team play, Clint, uh, it, it 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 felt like there wasn't so strong leadership on the team. It felt that way. That might be wrong, but to fans in the stands, to myself, uh, it, it just didn't look like a, a team that was driven with 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 great on field leadership. It didn't look that way to me. Now that that could be totally wrong. Could have all the coaches say, no, no, we had great leadership. You know, we, we didn't win because of X, Y, Z. It had nothing to do with that, but. That's the way it felt, and I wonder if it has something to do with what you know, kind of like what you're talking about. Me- meaning, you know, maybe the best leadership are, are, are kids that show up as freshmen, learn how to do things the Alabama way, and 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 are immersed in that before they become a year or two later starters and leaders on the team. Right, and that's kind of you're talking about Jordan Battle, you're talking about Brian yeah. Branch, you're talking about Demarco Hellams, DJ Dell, Byron Young, Justin DeBoigby. You've got all these, you know, Darian Dalcourt on the offensive side of the football. Uh, Bryce Young was certainly a guy who had come up and, and gone through the process. He had to sit, even though he was a superstar freshman, five-star player, he had to sit for a year and go, go through that process and learn what it took. Uh, Will Anderson, certainly, obviously. Uh, so it's not like that they they liked that completely. But I think that it's just, I, I don't know. I, I think that it was a combination of the personalities, like, and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't necessarily change. You don't have to be this, you know, super scary Jonathan Allen, Sean Robinson type of presence. You can be Bryce Young and have your own personality. You can be, you know, Jordan Battle and just this fun-loving personality that likes to joke around and, and, and cut up. And Will Anderson, you know, at times knows when to take things seriously, but he's also a fun-loving guy as well. I'm sure in the locker room he's very fun. And so you've got a lot of that, and then you've got these guys who are kind of assuming leadership roles who maybe – they deserve those roles because of their experience, but that experience came elsewhere. And you also, with the transfer portal, you have guys who are coming in, and even though everybody, I'm sure, gets told, you've got to earn your spot here. Nothing will be handed to you. Tyler Steen had to earn his starting left tackle role. Obviously, everybody watched it unfold over the course of the entire season. Eli Ricks had to earn his spot on the football field. So it's not like these things get handed to these guys, but at the same time, if you're a transfer portal player, and you've got one exemption, and you choose to pick Alabama, and you don't end up being a starter, you're already a lot closer to trying to get to the NFL because you're older. You've been in the system somewhere else, Jermaine Burton. There's a lot more pressure on you that you're putting on yourself to get into the starting lineup and make an impact. And now you're starting to worry, like, if I've come here and now I'm never going to play here, I don't have that transfer exemption anymore. Like, I got to sit out if I go elsewhere. And so there's a lot of tension that can be built up through you know those things as well 
And I think that that matters for Tyler Harrell. I mean, I, I wonder how frustrating right. it was for him. It was, hey, come over to Alabama, be this vertical threat, be, you know, kind of some kind of version of, of Jamison Williams. Uh, and, and when not only is he not being that guy, he's not even seeing the field, mostly because of injury. But then when, you know, it, it's season continued to carry on and he still wouldn't get on the field. I'm sure that started to mount some pressure and for Eli Ricks. I'm sure there was some pressure there as well. This guy was supposed to be a top 10 pick going into this season and it, it took him forever to finally break the starting lineup consistently. So it's just, it's different. And I wonder how much Nick Saban, you know, it will, will he see that or is that something that he's concerned about how does he build the you know get back on track as far as guys buying into you know the the process i don't know it's just something i've been thinking about recently yeah what's really interesting to me is you did you had a great piece yesterday on the offense about potential potential portal needs for alabama is a great piece on the offense i assume a, a piece on the defense is coming soon uh and it made me think for the first time uh when, when, or, or, or be more adamant about this when I look at the team and like, where could we use some portal help? What, what positions do we need an immediate veteran starter? You know, and funny to me, two, two of the positions that stand out to me, Clint, in terms of like where you might need somebody. Uh, one is wide receiver. And that's nuts because we have too many receivers on scholarship. I'm going to go on a rant on this. There's too many. There's too many. I know some fans are like, oh, well, we have to audition a lot of guys. That's why you need so many. Well, the problem is when you have so many at wide receiver, that means you're short somewhere else. The math doesn't change. The math doesn't allow you more players. We have too many at wide receiver. That's going to leave us very short somewhere else, which is bad. So we we have to address that. But but portal the, the portal might be a place for wide receiver because we don't have still after this season, assuming Burton moves on. I believe he will. I, I don't know that. But I'm guessing Jermaine Burton still enters a draft. Uh, again, I, we don't know that. Uh, but you're bringing in Malik Benson, as, as you point out. We're bringing in the Juco wide receiver, Malik Benson. That's sort of like a portal kid. He's older. Uh, you know, he's going to show up probably at least 21 years old. Uh, he's played a higher version of, of football than high school for two years. He's been a dominant player. He's going to show up with maybe the best measurables in the wide receiver group in terms of size slash speed and quickness. And Maybe you don't go in the portal now for wide receiver because Malik Benson has checked that box. Same thing at inside linebacker where you lose two starters. So you're losing Henry Toho Toho and Jalen Moody, uh, two guys that, that played a lot more starters. They're gone. So you think, gosh, losing both inside linebackers, you probably go to the portal for an inside off, off ball linebacker. But you, you got Justin Jefferson already committed and he's going to sign in December. The second of the Juco guys, he's, He's a Juco, just like Malik Benson, and looks like a kid to me, Clint, that will, will come in and, and, and be an immediate starter, at least contend for that spot. So maybe you've taken care of two potential portal needs just by signing uh, junior college players, uh, which will happen December 21st, and they'll be here for the spring. And I think that that is a, an, an excellent point, and I don't think it's a coincidence. There for a while, people were asking, is places like Alabama going to get away from signing JUCO prospects? And the reason being is if you're looking for that experience and that guy who can come in and immediately contribute, you now have the avenue of going to get a Jermaine Burton or an Eli Ricks, guys who have played major college football, SEC football, the highest you could possibly play and be effective. You can go get that guy to fill a need rather than having to turn to the JUCO ranks, which exactly. you know, the, big, the big reason why JUCO is appealing 
these guys do have at least some college experience and they'll be immediately eligible and they can fill more immediate needs rather than, you know, building long-term through high school. You know, so I think what's interesting is that Alabama not only has, has not gotten away from it, but they've targeted two key positions and added JUCO players from that. And I wonder if maybe that has something to do with they're more familiar with bringing that type of player in. And and it's a whole lot easier to get a JUCO guy to buy in, you know, because they haven't done it on the SEC level. They haven't been Mr. Everything like Eli Ricks. And I, by the way, I'm just using these guys as, as an example. I don't know if, if Eli Ricks had this problem, if Jermaine Burton, if Jamison Williams last year, Henry Toto. I'm just using them as an example, like how it's different. Uh, so don't take that and make, you know, I don't want anybody thinking that I'm, I'm speaking bad on Eli Ricks. I'm just saying, he would kind of have a right to like he was a freshman All-American at LSU. You don't get much bigger programs out there than LSU. And when you're Mr. Everything there and you come to Alabama, it's a lot more difficult because you're like, I've done this on this level and I've been extremely successful. Why do I have to do what you're telling me to do? You know, Malik Benson's going to be coming in. He's done on the Juco level like he'll buy in a lot more. And I'm just I'm not saying that that's a guaranteed thing. It just to me, it makes sense from a, you know, a mental standpoint where guys would would kind of be at. Yeah, and changing systems is big. And and I think Ricks is a good example. And again, not picking on him. And this is the whole let's pick on Eli Ricks show. But I I, I believe, I've heard, I'll say I've heard, but it's also incredibly easy to believe. When you go from one system to another as a defensive back, it's really tough on a college kid. It's hard enough on those NFL guys when they change teams as free agents and you leave the Buffalo Bills and now you're playing for the Cincinnati Bengals and you have to relearn a new playbook. On the one hand, NFL teams are real similar, one to another. There's not a gigantic difference in scheme from the Packers to the Titans or or the Chiefs to the Seahawks. Everyone in the NFL plays somewhat similar. Colleges are drastically different. It it can be a huge difference from one to another. Pointing it out on offense is easier than defense, I think, Clint, because I think we would all understand the difference between the offense at, let's say, the Air Force Academy and the offense at, let's say, uh, West Virginia. I mean, they couldn't be more different. Well, defense isn't going to be quite like that, but it is a lot like that. And Eli Ricks had to go from doing what he did at LSU to doing what he did at Alabama, where at LSU they called it green, at Alabama they call it blue. At LSU they call it silver, at Alabama they call it orange. Uh, Even a bigger difference, and this is what I believe is really the case, LSU plays a lot more man defense, just straight up man, which is the easiest type defense to learn, right? Well, Alabama, we play a lot of what's called match zone. You'll hear it all the time when Saban breaks down film on defense, match zone, which means – that it's part zone and part man, and it is complex. And Eli had to learn all that. And because he's an older kid, Clint, I think because he's an older kid come from LSU, we're just like, yeah, Eli, he'll step in and start. He was a starter at LSU. He'll start at Alabama. He's got to learn it no different than the freshman. And, and as we know with a lot of these freshmen, it takes more than a year to learn the complex schemes. I, I know that's a lesson I've learned from this past season myself is I'm going to start being more patient myself with the portal guys in terms of like, hey, you know, they might eventually become a starter, but I'm not going to just expect it day one because they have to learn so much. And it, and it, and it helps a lot if they're here in time and get to go through spring uh, would be big. But that, that's a lesson I've learned, particularly came from, from, from Rick's, but I think it's applicable to the other positions as well. Uh, some kids do pick up on it faster than others, and some kids are here for the spring, and 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 some aren't. Eli Rick showed up hurt 
and had to miss a lot of the spring. Uh, and then he got hurt in fall camp and had to miss a lot of fall camp. So it all got exacerbated, right? He, he wasn't out there to learn it uh, because he was hurt. Uh, and I think in part, that's why it took Rick so long to get in the lineup. Yeah, and and you look at other guys. You look at a Henry Toho Toho, right? He came from Jeremy Pruitt's system. That is very similar to Nick Saban in Alabama. So his transition, right. being a day one starter for him, is a lot easier. I think we need to more so take into account where these guys are coming from, what they were asked to do at their respective schools. Like Jamison Williams, he was in the lineup. He was getting some action. And a lot of the routes and stuff that Alabama had him running, he would, that's what he would kind of his role at Ohio State. They just weren't targeting yeah. him as much. And he yeah. had to rotate a little bit more than he did at Alabama. Uh, so that was made for an easier transition. Uh, really, his biggest hurdle was getting on the same page with Bryce Young, and he was able to do that really quickly. So, yeah, and, you know, speaking to your how things are different in the NFL, it's all based off of offense, right? Pretty much everybody on the NFL level, pretty much, not everybody, but pretty much everybody runs the pro-style offense. It's called the pro-style offense for a reason. And how you defend the pro-style offense is all going to be relatively very similar. What stops it? Like, you're not going to get too creative. So there's not much variance, both on the offensive and the defensive side of the football. So it is very... You know that making the transition, if you're a big ticket free agent and you go sign with a new team, granted, I think with receivers and stuff, like their first year at a new place, uh, it, they don't typically make the impact that you would think that they would. Like, uh, you know, Allen Robinson was one when he signed with the Chicago Bears, didn't end up uh, having a great year one, then ended up, you know, kind of catching fire in years two and three and stuff. Now he's not doing well with the Rams after a transition. In year one. Yeah, so it's like, you know, I think, I mean, you look at Odell Beckham Jr. and his transition from the New York Giants to the Cleveland Browns struggle. You know, I think probably one of the best transitions I've ever seen was Amari Cooper going from the Raiders to the Cowboys. I mean, that cat pretty much stepped on the field from day one and was ready to rock and roll. But, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the transfer portal and the impact, yeah. and, and and we're going to be talking a lot more about it. So if you don't enjoy this yeah. podcast, uh I hate it for you because it's going to be a huge topic of conversation because this is your roster building, right? Uh, this isn't just – go ahead. And I just want to say one word of warning, uh, and I was reminded of this by a guy that really knows the college football landscape really well this morning. Uh, I don't think fans are ready for what's going to happen next Monday. Th this isn't the portal of the past. This is a new portal. <laughs> this is new. And, and, and let me warn you all even further, this is going to happen, and it may happen at Alabama. And when it does – I know our fans are going to freak out, even though it's happening everywhere else, but they'll just live in their Alabama world and, and only see Alabama. But what's going to happen, Clint, is a lot of the biggest stars in the game are getting in the portal. Guys that you're like, why would this guy leave that place? He's just, They're all getting in the portal because they all want NIL deals. That's what's going to happen. And, and, and they want bigger deals. And they think, college football players believe, rightly or wrongly, they believe that the, the people getting these big NIL deals are the freshmen. The freshmen get the deal because everybody's bidding for them. Players that are already in place, players that are juniors, seniors, uh, that, that, you know, they, they weren't, they didn't go through this. They didn't get NIL deals when they were coming out of high school. So a lot of them believe that, hey, if I want a big NIL deal, I have to be up for bid. I have to be a free agent, no different than high school players or free agents picking which college they want to go to. Uh, so I don't be surprised. I'm, I'm not saying Kool-Aid and Dallas Turner are going to the portal. I'm using them as an example. Don't be shocked when players of that magnitude enter the portal and then all of a sudden the fans freak out. Why doesn't he like it here? 
Why doesn't he want to play here? Why is everybody leaving? The dynasty's dead. They don't even want to be here. It will happen everywhere, and this is why. Yeah, and, you know, I think that it will also – you'll what you'll see is you'll see a lot of big names enter the portal, and then other names that maybe weren't really considering it will look at what they're doing and how it's benefiting them, and they might follow yeah. suit. You know, like That's a Luther exactly. Burton. Luther Burden from Missouri, big time receiver. He said, yes. "Hey, I'm not going anywhere." Uh, if he's watching, you know, Evan Stewart yes. and and you know a, a lot of big time receivers, I'm a, hypothetically, you know, Jacory Brooks or somebody else enter the portal and end up getting a sizable NIL deal out of it. Uh, then you know he might rethink that, and you might see him enter at a later date. Uh, we'll have to just wait and see. But it is going to be crazy, and we, we don't know fully what to expect. But we, you know, in the industry and us just talking behind the scenes. And, and people who have sources and who have been talking to a lot of these players, um, it's, you know, the, the, the it's going to be a lot crazier than people think. And, and one other thing to talk about, what we're going to do is kind of, because this is only 30 minutes um, or 40 minutes on Zoom, we'll kind of do another one where we actually specifically talk about the Auburn game. So that we'll, and we'll combine them and turn it into one. But I just think that we're going down a rabbit hole that a lot of fans are going to want to hear about. Um, but yeah. You know, talking about Nick Saban and and what he said about the fan base, and it wasn't just the fan base; it was the media. I, mean, I would actually say it was probably more media than fan base. But he also talked about the negative fans. This is what I'll compare it to. You ever hear about those dads in high school baseball or high school football? Their kid has a tough game. He goes and you know uh, they lose the game, and and he didn't play well. And he goes and gets in the car, rides home with his parents, and the entire way home, his dad's berating him. Like, you know, you played terrible. You, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're screwing your life up. Your future's done. You're not very good. All this stuff, all this negative energy, right? And it's like, it, I would highly recommend, and I need to go find it, and I'll try to link it for people that are listening. I'm going to figure out somewhere to link it. But it's Bryce Young talking, or Bryce Young's dad talking with On3 about, you know, how he handled his son and his success and how, there were times where he wanted to make comments and he refrained from doing it because it wasn't beneficial. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, is a psychologist. Like, I mean, he's very uh, in tune with how to approach people and, and you know, all those different things. And he said, you know, he made comments about, you know, staying positive and, and doing that positive reinforcement and getting away from football. And, you know, I think that fans need to go and listen to that because sometimes you want to make comments. You're frustrated. Like, this is a brand that you have now attached your name to. And it's something that's brought you so much pride for 15 years. And when you don't see them living up to the standard in which you attach yourself to originally, and even if you were already a fan, like you continue to attach yourself to, it brings you frustration as well. And you want to voice that opinion. And I completely understand that. And I'm sure Nick Saban understands that. But sometimes you got to be that dad that realizes I'm doing more harm than good by voicing my own frustrations. I can have those, you know, behind closed doors and maybe dad talks to mom and you know, there's conversations happening, but just the kid, uh, you got to take them into account how this is all affecting them. And, and just, you know, the, the dad's thinking, hey, if I berate him enough, he's going to get his, you know, get things straight. He's going to get things corrected. It doesn't always work that way. Uh, it can affect guys negatively mentally as much as it does the other way. So, I mean, just hearing his comment and, and saying, hey, if you're a negative Nancy, go be a fan of some other team because that's not what we built this program on and it's not really going to help us. And so what were your thoughts on some of the comments that Saban made? First of all, I mean, you know, I get up, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I get upset just like everyone else. I want Alabama to win. I want them to look great. I, I get 
frustrated too when it when it's not going the way I want it to go. But you have to remember about public comments, and it's not the NFL. As much as it's look as much as it looks like the NFL at times <laughs> with the portal and the NIL deals and the players getting paid and and the, and, and and yeah, it's, it it resembles the NFL. But in one way, it's not, and that's this: these kids coming out of high school, they get to choose which college they want to play for. Uh, and NIL is a part of that, but they get to choose. And that's what we have to remember as fans all the time. Kids have to want to be here and want to be a part of it. If all they're hearing from the fans of that school is everything sucks here. Our coaches are terrible. We want the coordinators fired. The head coach is getting old. We've got to make changes. That's what they're hearing from the fans because a huge mistake fans make is they think the kids don't read that or they don't hear it. They absolutely they do. do. They absolutely 100% do, and their families are on these message boards and on Twitter and on social media reading what's said about their kids every day. That is a fact. If you don't if you don't understand that fact or don't agree with it, don't agree, but it is a fact. So that's where I have the problem with, with the extreme negativity that's not constructive is that we're trying to build an environment, and Nick Saban's trying to build an environment where – kids want to be a part of it and and they don't want to be a part of it if if it's booing and it's fire this guy and fire this guy and this kid sucks and that kid sucks and he shouldn't be playing and uh that that's the negativity that's always bothered me and uh considering that Alabama's finishing 10 and 2 ranked probably 5th or 6th in the poll uh lost two games on the road to top 10 teams by one play uh, the extreme negativity is it's mind boggling. And, and even after all these years of being around it, I don't know how I, I get surprised, but I get surprised. Well, I mean, in, you know, if, if you were going to work for like a company and all you heard was like, man, this company is heading in the wrong direction. This used to be a great place to work, <laughs> but man, I'll tell you what, the CEO, man, point, man. Uh, he's getting older and his son's going to be taking over. And that cat, man, that, that guy's a buffoon, uh, you know, or it's right. I mean, your, your direct supervisor is just a complete asshat. Uh, pardon my language, but I mean, that's, <laughs> these are the conversations that take place. Right. I mean, and, and if you hear these things, Explain to me what makes that place appealing. Like, you know, if, if you're, if you see all these negative things taking place and that's how your family it's like, there are very few people who are more in tune with a college football program than their fan base. Like Alabama fans are some of the most passionate fans on the entire planet. They eat, sleep and breathe Alabama football. They, they have a great pulse on what's going on. They don't always understand the intricate details and, and things that are happening behind the scenes and, why certain things are happening, but they're very vocal. I mean, if you're a recruit and you're hopping on Twitter and it's fire Pete Golding to the moon or whatever it is that people like to say, and you're like, man, do I really want to go play for Pete Golding? And then if he sticks around because Nick Saban believes he's the right guy now, I mean, it's like there's there's a negative perception there. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. Not saying don't voice your frustrations at all. I think do it in a more constructive way and just understand that you as a fan have more power than you think you do. And especially in today's social media world, back in the 90s and the early 2000s when social media wasn't really a thing, you didn't have to worry about that because fans could be ticked off all they want to. Where are they going to go talk about it? At work where no one can hear it? Um, barbershop. Barbershop. Yeah, but yeah. And, and, and who, who's the barber talking to, right? I mean, is he? So my point is that 
now it's a lot more like what you you have reach as a as an average fan that you've never had before. I know a lot of great Alabama fans who have a tremendous following on Twitter and they hold, you know, what I would call, you know, quote unquote power. I, don't, I mean, mm-hmm. that's probably a poor choice of word, but, you know, true. yeah. And, and how you wield that power is very important because you do affect things more than you think. So just keep that in mind as a fan, uh, positive vibes. I understand the frustration. I mean, and you'll see me. I, what I like to do is I like to be a hundred percent transparent and upfront on how I feel about things. I don't want to sugarcoat it when it's not good. But at the same time, I also understand, you know, how is this, how is this benefiting or, or is it actually hurting? So just something to weigh amongst yourselves. Um, as I, I don't know about you, Jimmy, but it felt like that the Iron Bowl on Saturday, you saw a lot of positive energy coming from Alabama. Did it look perfect? You gave up 300 yards on the ground to the Tigers. I mean, it wasn't like this was this fantastic performance, but I don't know about you, but just from an energy level and – how they played and how they battled and how they switched things up finally in a lot of different ways. I thought it was a very encouraging performance across the board. Yeah. Well, I like to see the players excited and I think the players were excited. I think they were into it. Uh, There's a difference between playing well and playing hard. Uh, I don't think the defense played well at all, but I, I do think they played hard and they wanted to win and they tried. Uh, they did their best and, and they were clearly excited about about winning. And that's what I like to see. And I think the win was the win was great because the other way would have been so bad. I mean, a loss would have resulted in a, a chaotic offseason and it's going to be a little chaos as it is, but it would have been a major chaos. That's why this win was so big because it avoided what would have been truly a, a bad situation. But uh, I, I thought the offense played well. I thought it was the offense's best game in a while. I thought Bryce Bryce looked healthier to me than he has. Uh, he had some zip on the ball that I don't think he's had in recent weeks uh, since the shoulder. So I think he was healthier. I think the offensive line played well. Uh, I, I've been saying all year long in the rewatch threads, that the offensive line is better than what all the critics say and that that that, that it's really not nearly as bad as last year and it's quite better. Uh, still a long ways from where we want it or need it to be, but the offensive line wasn't as bad as the critics are saying. And I think the offensive line had one of its better games, particularly in the second half. Uh, the pass protection all season has been great. Going from – we haven't talked about that enough. Going from – Bryce sacked 42 times last year sacked only 10 times this season unbelievable unbelievable Unbelievable. sacked seven times versus auburn last year seven in one game zero against auburn saturday pass protection great hopefully coach wolford will make strides with his line in terms of blocking uh run blocking uh in this offseason as much as he did with the pass pro this year and uh yeah, I, I think overall great. Love seeing Reichard's last game. Love seeing him make that tackle, which is funny. That's a good memory. Uh, and and uh, yeah, I mean it was, it was a really good win because it, it, the the a loss would have been just led to a, a really rough off season. But uh, you went you ten and two. You're not going to make the playoff almost certainly. But the fact that you're in in a discussion is fun, <laughs> and most likely you're headed to the Sugar Bowl and. Uh, Hey, I, I know it was uh, a million years ago when I was in college at Alabama, but when I was in college at Alabama, making the Sugar Bowl was a big deal. I mean, getting to the Sugar Bowl was a thing from from 88 to 92 when I was there. I, was, I know it was a long time ago and, and the sport was different, but I, I, I get excited. 
excited when I hear the sugar bowl because I still remember that from my from my youth. The sugar bowl was our Rose Bowl. Right. Yeah. And I think that a lot of Alabama's problems defensively were, you know, linebackers over pursuing. They weren't really their run fits weren't correct. But I will say this. I think a lot of those issues stem from being overly active. And a lot of times you'll see guys and uh, and at certain points this year, guys were playing timid because they didn't like they were confident in what they were doing. And we did see all these guys going about 100 miles an hour making their mistakes. And they were over pursuing, you know, rush lanes and, and, and gaps and things like that and creating opportunities. But at least they were doing it at 100 miles an hour. Deontay Lawson did that quite a bit. Uh, I thought Henry Toto was flying, you know, trying to make a play, just – was not always in the best position. Uh, Brian Branch, one of the huge issues that I think a lot of fans do have a gripe about, uh, especially in this game, but really it's been a theme all year to a certain extent, is the the inability to make tackles, um, get guys on the ground. You don't see guys rallying to the football as a collective group as much as you have in years past. It's a lot more one-on-one, and guys are making, you know, uh, opposing offensive guys are making guys miss and creating chunk gains that necessarily didn't have to be there. Like even guys like Brian Branch, who's notoriously known for being one of the most reliable tacklers in not just the Nick Saban era, but maybe in Alabama football history. That guy whiffed really bad on one one of Robbie Ashford's, you know, long touchdown runs. Um, I mean, it was really bad. And, And it wasn't just him. It was pretty much across the board. And I think some of that has to do with where practice is at nowadays and the fact that you don't have live tackling nearly as much. It's, it's hit and wrap up. Don't take to the ground. Not trying to get anybody injured. You got head injuries, so you don't have as much physicality in practice. And we we understand brain trauma that happens from from contact sports like, like football, and that's taken into consideration. And just the practices are it, – it's so difficult to replicate what you're going to see on Saturdays, even when you are tackling guys to the ground and stuff. Uh, it's just it's a completely different pace and speed in a live game where it matters. And and so I think that the gap there between practice and, and games is, is now grown even more, and it's made it more difficult for guys to learn how to tackle properly. Now somebody, you know, in the call-in show, the post-game show, brought up the point, hey, Georgia doesn't seem to have nearly as big of a problem with it as Alabama. Sometimes you just get the right guys in there who know how to do it, and, and it's a good combination. Now, I do think that Kirby – I mean, Alabama had some sure tacklers when he was at Alabama. So far at Georgia, they're pretty sure tackling guys. Um, so maybe it is something that they're doing, and Alabama needs to look into that. But I do think that was somewhat of a legitimate gripe uh, was the lack of, of tackling. It kind of looked like a Big 12 defense there for a little while. Hey, I'm just – I mean, giving Auburn that level of production in the run game when you knew that was all they had, that's their only bullet to fire. They would be one-dimensional coming in and still being unable to stop it to the tune of giving up, I think, the most rushing yards in the Saban era, or maybe the most since 2007. But it was it was an extremely, I think, a poor performance in terms of game plan and execution of that game plan. I question the plan itself. I question the execution of that plan. The tackling wasn't, wasn't good. It was very frustrating to watch because, you know, it seemed so simple. To, to stop. And, and I'm not saying it is simple. I'm just saying it seems so simple. Hey, the, the quarterback's going to run the ball. If he's not, he's going to hand it to, to Bigsby or, or Hunter. And, and that's all they're going to do is, is run the ball. And, and, you know, you could just commit nine <laughs> to the run game. Just let the, the corners 
cover the receivers and the other nine can focus on the run game. And I, I don't know, uh, it, it, you know, it, to me, it was a very frustrating performance by the defense, but, but they did make enough stop. By the way, at times the defense held them to three and outs that were big. Auburn went three and out a few times in the game and Alabama's defense at times dominated Auburn on some snaps, but it wasn't consistent for 60 minutes and not even close, but Alabama did win the game easily. That's another thing to fact. Alabama won the game easily. There weren't, there was an, I think an onside kick, uh, but, but that, that makes it sound like Alabama was sweating at no point was Alabama sweating out the outcome of this game. Yeah. You're, you're right there. I, I saw an Auburn fan on Facebook tweet and say, Hey, you allowed 300 plus yards in the ground to Auburn. There's no way you deserve to be in the college football playoff. And my response to that was pretty simple. They allowed over 300 yards to Georgia Southern in 2011 and then won the national mm-hmm. title. That's right. So uh, Georgia Southern, yeah. Auburn, you know, I would say you got a team yeah. giving up 300 to Georgia Southern. You would say, hey, mm-hmm. that team doesn't deserve to be in any national title picture and they won it all. So right. uh, that's kind of, you know, if you if you get that from any Auburn fans, there's your nice little counter because it's happened <laughs> before in that, hey, that 2011 defense supposed to be pretty darn good, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. Uh, they uh, they certainly had their their issues, and so, sometimes it can be X's and O's, and 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 you just can't come up with the right adjustment. Sometimes it it can be that, and I, I get that. Uh, and again, Auburn was going to get 300 yards somehow, some way, and they can't throw it. Uh, I predicted uh, to friends. I probably should have been more adamant uh, publicly or on the board. I predicted Auburn would have uh, almost 250, and people thought I was crazy. But I was just doing. Math. Auburn was going to get 250 or 300 somehow. And they weren't going to get it throwing it. So I yep. was just like, well, they'll run for that much because it's not like we're going to hold them to 80 yards. Well, and I mean, yeah, get yards. I think my bold prediction was either 400 or 450 collectively between Alabama and Auburn that they would run for. Right. And that they were approaching 500 and, and six touchdowns on the ground between the two teams. So both had rushing success. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll hop back on. You're not going to spend a ton more on this but at least you know five ten more minutes and then we'll get out of here but we appreciate you guys tuning in and we'll be right back and we're back from break jimmy ended up being a little bit longer of a break than we had intended it was supposed to be like a like a five minute break let the let the episode load go and get that lined up and then finish it up but then news broke that offensive lineman damian george would be entering the transfer portal of course that would certainly happen while we're in the middle of recording get a text that is going on and uh, you and I are, are talking about the transfer portal, so pretty good timing, I would say. Well, I mean, here's here's what I'm thinking uh, over this week and particularly next week. I think the odds are good if we're recording a podcast that while we're recording the show, while we're recording the Bama 3 show, there will be an Alabama player that enters the portal. And, 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 and there's just good odds of that because it's going to be – Highly frequent. Um, if I'm guessing, Clint, uh, I, I'm going to guess, and this is a wild guess. There's no way for me to know this. Uh, wild guess. I think Alabama will have uh, 18 to maybe 20 players in the portal uh, total, uh, not counting walk-ons. We already have, by the way, three or four walk-ons have entered the portal. It just doesn't make news. And, and if they're not playing in the games and dressing out, you know, we, we don't really spend a lot of time reporting it at Bama Insider, but, but uh, I, I think 18 to 20. And by the way, I, I'm being conservative. I wanted to say 30. I just don't have the guts to say that, but uh, I, I'm going to say 18 to 20 players in the portal total uh, in this particular window. 
uh, and uh, and Damian George is, uh, I guess, is he the second scholarship player? Him and Trey Sanders, uh, Kyrie Jackson, and Kyrie. So that's three, three. Yeah, and, and then, uh, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll uh, obviously we'll we'll talk all all this through. Yeah, well, it's you also got Braylon Ingram, uh, who entered technically before the season. I don't know what's going on right. with that. And then right. Jack Martin, who's a walk on. So yeah, you were you were the only one you were missing with Kyrie Jackson, but. You're talking about Trey Sanders. He was a big part of the offense last year. That was more out of necessity due to injuries. Uh, right. Great player, great kid. Kyrie Jackson had started some games for Alabama, had played quite a bit. Damian George, same situation. So th- this is some key depth. And and I wasn't surprised by George. I don't know about you, but, um, you know, just the fact that when you go back and look, when's the last time he played? I mean, he, he saw 20 snaps against Utah State, and he hadn't seen any time on the offensive line since. So yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised at all. I'm not surprised at all that Damian George is in the portal. Uh, I would say though, you know, I, I think I, we'll have to see who returns. We're, we're, I imagine you're on board with me that uh, Tyler Steen, Emil Echior, and Darian Dalcourt are all leaving and not coming back. I, I mean, I, I think we assume that they all participated in Senior Day on Saturday. All three of those players. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're definitely leaving. It just means that they're highly likely to leave i would say so if they're if they're out uh damian george i think had what i would call an outside shot to win the the fifth starting spot because i think we would we would say clint i think we would agree that uh seth mclaughlin's a likely returning starter uh tyler booker's likely to start javion cohen's likely to start uh and uh jc latham so that's four so there's one available spot Maybe more if if guys can beat out one of those four, but at least one spot is clearly wide open. I think Damian George had, had a uh, a decent shot. Now my money is the same as where I think yours is, Clint. My money is going to be on Elijah Pritchett. It's a it's a long way to that happens, but Pritchett's where I think they'll go for that fifth spot. But it also could be Amari Kite who filled in uh, really well when uh, when when Latham uh, no not Latham when Steam went out. Uh, Kite had to play a whole half uh, when Steen got hurt, and, uh, and and I thought did really well. So um, we'll see. So I think Damian George had an outside shot at that fifth spot. He cert- almost certainly would have been a two uh, had he stayed, but he doesn't want to be a two. He wants to be a one, and if you want to be a one, uh, that portal is probably a good decision for him, and this isn't what I would call a uh, crippling loss for Alabama, but clearly the kid is you know has a chance to be a good player. Yeah, his big issue was pass protection, right? I mean, he can move people in the run game pretty well, but just uh, he looked pretty good against New Mexico State last year. He looked pretty good against Arkansas and then against Auburn. Five pressures, including two hurries, a quarterback hit, and allowing two sacks. He was a a swinging door that was just pretty much wide open for immediate pressure on Bryce Young. Ended up getting benched. They put Chris Owens back at, at right tackle. He fared a little bit better. He, I think he gave up four pressures, but just the sacks and allowing Bryce to get hit and stuff wasn't quite as bad. So, yeah, it, it was uh, right tackle really probably wasn't his position. And they tried to move him inside in the spring. He got it run with the first-team offense pretty much all throughout the spring with Emil Ikior Jr. being injured. And Tyler Booker was still trying to work his way up the depth chart. He was still you know new being a freshman, but uh, – yeah, once Tyler Booker kind of took over as that rotational guard, 
and the first one off the bench. And then you had Amari Kite, who was the first tackle. And then you also had Kendall Randolph, who started off playing offensive line and then late in some mop-up duty was coming in. You know, he'd go from playing wearing 85 and, and playing tight end to playing a little bit of tackle. Wearing number 60, it's like Damian George's playing time. And I think really just his time yeah. in Tuscaloosa started to to come to an end at that point. Uh, but, yeah, his big issue was pass protection. That, that was a glaring weakness. Never really saw it improve too much. I thought going inside and, and playing in a phone booth would help him, but in the spring game, uh, he wasn't great there either. Um, yeah. And, you know, with Kyrie Jackson, it's good player in a lot of ways, very physical, very long, has a lot of desirable traits at that position, but he, he struggles to carry receivers vertically. And, and it was a problem last year in the national championship game. It was a problem against Texas. Uh, and just, you know, when that's a common theme. So you got two glaring weaknesses with your probably the two biggest names, the guys that were actually starting some games and playing quite a bit. Trey Sanders was in there as well. But when everybody's healthy, he was so far down the depth chart, um, you know, that I don't – big name, but just not necessarily as impactful as losing the other two from a depth standpoint. But Yeah, I think, I think losing Kyrie of the three, uh, Kyrie Jackson, Trey Sanders, and Damian George in the portal – I would say of those three, Kyrie is the biggest loss because I think he's the best player of those three. I just also think that he's not as good as uh, Kool-Aid McKinstry. He's not as good as Terrion Arnold. Uh, and, and I don't believe he would even beat out, uh, you know, a guy at star, whether that's Malachi Moore or a new guy like Earl Little Jr. Uh, uh, so I, Kyrie was unlikely to even be in the lineup at Alabama next year. So I understand him getting in the portal. I just think he's a good player. And what what we're going to see, Clint, I think is what we'll see. Assuming these guys make good decisions about their landing spots, I fully expect Kyrie Jackson, uh, Damian George, and Trey Sanders to be starters uh, wherever they land. Uh, They're good players. Uh, There's just a difference between being good and being good enough to start at Nick Saban's Alabama. Well, yeah, and it's funny that you say that because I'm about to, you know, you got situations like Drew Sanders, right, who who go to Texas, become an immediate starter, impactful player, really has solidified himself as an early draft pick eventually. I don't know if he comes out after this year or not, but if he does, I still think he's going to be, it would be a first-round guy, maybe not, uh, but I think he'll definitely be in that day two conversation, and if he comes back and continues to, to grow in that role, then I could easily see him being a, a day one pick come next year. You've got those guys, and then you've got the Marcus Banks of the world, who I understand that Cooley McKinstry last year kind of overtaken him as the number three corner. I think that frustrated him a little bit. He entered the portal early last year, ended up transferring to Mississippi State, and he played 92 snaps in seven games for them on defense. So didn't even break 100 snaps. I, I bet he would have played – more than that at Alabama, to be quite honest with you, even with Kyrie Jackson and Tyrion Arnold, with them trying to find a, a, an Eli Ricks, with them trying to find a guy, I'm sure he would have gotten some opportunities and also some of those blowouts. I don't know where a lot of Marcus Banks, I guess I could look, you know, if the computer would decide to load. Uh, but yeah, 27 came against Bowling Green, uh, 18 came against East Tennessee State, 12 came against Memphis. So you know, really the most snaps that he played in any game of significance uh, was that Arkansas game, and he only had 14. Other than that, he never broke double digits. So just didn't make the kind of impact that I'm sure he was hoping for. And I would have bet he would have been a starter there. I, I mean, I remember when he left for Mississippi State, I was thinking, man, he's probably going to start. But 
I tell you what, there are uh, there are other corner uh, Forbes, Emmanuel yes. Forbes. What he's a dude, man. I, 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 I get the Banks doesn't play in front of him. That uh, Forbes is awesome. I thought Forbes and and Banks. I thought they were going to combine to make a very uh, underrated yeah. cornerback duo. I thought it was a good landing yeah. spot for him, and so that's why I say some of these guys are going to go and and they're going to find out. Hey, the grass isn't always greener. Um, you sure. know, Keelan Keelan Robinson's still trying to find his way onto the field consistently for Texas. Now that Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson probably are both gone, you'll probably might. I don't know how many years of eligibility. Keelan has left, but I, I'm sure he still at least has one. So you might see him a little bit more next year. We'll, we'll wait and see. But sometimes guys transfer and it ends up not working out. That's right. But, you know, going back to the Auburn game and talking a little bit more about that before we hop off out of here, dude, what were your, some of your thoughts? You, we've already talked about the the giving up 300-plus yards. Uh, you, we've talked about Bryce having an excellent game. But just from, you know, more of a bird's-eye view and just where things were trending, I feel like, What's interesting to me, and maybe I'll go ahead and get your reaction out the gate and then we can kind of talk about it. It's like when the pressure was lifted of winning a championship, or at least that's the way that it came off when they lost to LSU. Ole Miss, really bad in that first half against Ole Miss. Really bad. Probably some of the worst football I've ever seen during the Nick Saban era. But around halftime, things shifted. And since then, they weren't great against Austin P. Don't get me wrong. In fact, I think there were some struggles, but let's not act like that some dominant, really good Alabama teams in the past haven't struggled with 11 a.m. kickoffs against FCS opponents like Austin P. that where you're, it's such a big favorite that you're, you know, Vegas won't even get put, put a line on it. Like it, it's that big. You know, even the good teams struggle in those type of environments. So I can't really hold that against them too much. But with between Auburn and that first, or excuse me, that second half against Ole Miss, I think they've been playing some pretty good football as of late. And it's like you know, Nick Saban talked about guys kind of putting too much pressure on you know winning a championship. And now that that kind of went out the door against LSU, even though technically they're still in it, it's like they're relaxing a little bit, playing a little bit better. They're playing for each other. It just feels to me like maybe if I was Nick Saban, I wouldn't want to be talking about playoffs at all right now. Because as long right. as they can continue to have this mentality, I think it's benefiting them. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, again, uh, it sort of sticks with the theme of, of what the show uh, what was today, Clint. The Auburn game was the bowl game. I know it used to not be the case, but the Auburn game was the bowl game because this is the last time this team's all going to be together. Uh, there's going to be a lot of players in the portal. There's going to be a lot of players that, that opt out because they're, they're uh, preparing for the draft. And this particular team that we've seen since game one against Utah State, the Auburn game was the last time they were all playing together. Uh, the bowl game is going to look like uh, what, what I would call a, a skeleton lineup of the 2023 team. I mean, that that's what, who's going to play in that bowl game, uh, probably the Sugar Bowl uh, against Kansas State, I would think. Uh, I think you're going to see what amounts to a makeshift 2023 lineup uh, with a lot of guys missing. So I do think that a lot of the exhilaration and joy that we saw on the field when the game was over, when our whole team was smiling and happy and having fun together, I think it was a, a realization that this was the last time uh, that they were playing together as a team because uh, because the bowl game, is the, the lineup's just going to look uh, radically different. That's such an excellent point. And I would almost be – you're probably going to be missing Bryce Young. You're probably going to be missing Will Anderson. Uh, you might be missing a Brian Branch. You know, he got banged up towards the end of the Iron Bowl and don't know how significant it is. I don't think it's it's too serious, but I could see him maybe sitting out. Now, granted, 
I think a lot of people expected based off of who did, did end up sitting out a couple of years ago when they played Michigan. Jerry Judy ended up playing in that game. No one really expected him to. There were, there were a couple of guys who stuck around, and, and you might see that. Maybe a Brian Branch type will, or maybe a senior, you know, that wants to continue to build his, on his draft stock a little bit. I think Byron Young has been really quiet the last couple of weeks. You know, Austin P, uh, somewhat justifiable. Uh, Auburn, maybe not as much. So would expect him to maybe play, but at the same time, I don't know. This is all speculation. But yeah, uh, it, it is interesting. And, and now that you add the, the transfer portal wrinkle into it, guys can still participate on the team, even with their intention to transfer. But you also got guys, I mean, who are just going to want to go ahead and call it quits and move on. And so not only are you maybe missing some guys opting out of the bowl game from that standpoint, from moving on to the NFL draft, you also got guys who are going to be entering the transfer portal. So you're losing a lot of your depth. Um, and that really can make things interesting as well. So, yeah, I think it is kind of a, a look ahead a little bit to 2023. And it makes things really interesting. You know, what are your thoughts on the coordinators? Because I thought Bill O'Brien called arguably his best game as Alabama's OC. You saw a lot more RPO usage with Bryce Young. You saw a lot more shot plays. You saw screens being mixed into it. And it just feels like, from a fan's perspective, it's not like they, that Alabama is going to dictate anything that they do on a football field based off of what fans want them to do. That's not how it works. But I will say this. You want to catch even more criticism? It's like when fans are right and you doing these things and putting that you know them into your offense and it working, and it's like they've been preaching this from day one. Why couldn't you figure this out? Like if the average fan who you know they're not getting paid millions of dollars to call plays on Saturdays, you are, and, and you can't. You know, I'm not trying to criticize too much, but bottom line is, is he implemented some of this new stuff, and it's like what could have been. This offense looked pretty darn good. Yeah, I thought the offense uh, – I think there were some wrinkles to me. I mean, like uh, I remember, you know, the, uh, several plays that, that we'll touch on, particularly in the rewatch thread this week on the Bama Insider board. Um, there were a handful of plays that was like, where has that been all year? But, but um, you know, I, I think what happens with the – I, I tend to almost always believe it's personnel and as opposed to X's and O's. And to me, it's a healthier Bryce maybe allowed you to do more things, maybe – uh, I think more confidence in Bryce's shoulder allowed for maybe a more expanded game plan. There was certainly more of a vertical attack down the field. I have to believe that's that's related to Bryce's shoulder being better. Uh, so I think it's more that than Bill O'Brien waking up and deciding he want to do something new. Could be another offensive mind uh, getting involved in the game plan. That happens sometimes where – Coach Saban, I'm just making this up, but Coach Saban says to a particular offensive staffer, hey, uh, I want you to be more involved in the game plan this week and the, and the play sheet. I want you to be involved in that. And, and, and that ends up being a change. Uh, it could be that Bill O'Brien wanted to empty the kitchen sink because he's on his way out. Well, we've talked about on the show all summer and fall. Uh, I, you know, I don't believe Bill O'Brien will be back next season with Alabama. Uh, I, I don't believe that. Uh, it's not not anything I can report because I don't have news to report. But what I do have is just a feeling and talking to people. And it's just my my opinion after talking to several people and, and my own thoughts that uh, Bill O'Brien will be moving on, uh, whether it's a head coach at, at a college or potentially an OC opportunity in the NFL. So, I think that could have been a factor as well. I don't know whether Bill O'Brien would be the OC uh, in the Sugar Bowl 
um, or, or whether he would already be gone by then. I don't know that. So it could have been his last game, and, and maybe that was uh, also responsible for some wrinkles in the sense that, hey, on your way out the door, you might want to try some new things. Okay, let me put it to you this way. And there might be one particular game that hangs you up, but I feel like we're probably on the same page with this. Whether it be quarters, halves, or games in general, in your opinion, what is the best that Alabama's offense has looked this year? Hmm. That is a really good question. Uh, I do think the Auburn game is a strong candidate. Uh, I'm going to controversially say Tennessee uh, because I felt once the team got behind and, and, and that I felt the offense play with urgency in Knoxville uh, and, and they scored 42, the team scored 49, but seven of that came from the defense. So it scored 42 on the road. Uh, I, so I, I'm going to say the fourth quarter at Arkansas with Milrow, uh, but Tennessee and Knoxville is a strong candidate. Although we saw South Carolina score in the sixties on that defense, that defense isn't great. Auburn's defense, I think in some ways probably is better than Tennessee's to be honest. Um, I, I, I would overall, I, I might would pick Auburn in terms of a full game. Uh, if we're not going to pick games like Vanderbilt and, uh, and Louisiana Monroe and Southern Miss. Yeah. See for me, and I agree with, I, I thought the Tennessee game would be the one that kind of, uh, hung us up, right? Uh, because I agree with you. And that was right after Bryce came back, 52 pass attempts. And I think Tennessee's secondary is just that bad. Uh, but it, yeah, right. that, that's about as explosive as the offenses look for the most part. I think I would put Auburn as far as just looking the most impressive, uh, guys being on right. the same page, it, it operating, you know, smoothly. I would definitely say Auburn was the number one. Number two for me, and you say fourth quarter of Arkansas, I say first quarter and, and it wasn't leading directly to points, but it felt like they were just dominating Arkansas and yeah. they scored 14 with Bryce as the starter, but they missed on some opportunities. There were some drops in there, but I thought that that was probably the best, one of the best quarters of, of offensive football that we saw. And what it's interesting about the Auburn game in the first quarter of that Arkansas game, first quarter and a half, whatever it, it was, you saw consistent shot plays downfield. You saw them not, you know, it feels like in a lot of these games, they take one or two, it wouldn't work out. And then they completely abandoned trying to throw the football deep. And this one, they hit some big plays. They missed some big plays. Did that deter them? No, they were like, hey, we're taking shot after shot. And you saw the offense look a lot more like Alabama's offense last year and what we've seen in years past against Arkansas. You saw Isaiah Bond. You saw Kobe Prentice. You saw a lot of these guys making explosive plays. And so I don't think that's a coincidence, you know, I, and I don't know how much Bill O'Brien was hindered by Bryce Young's shoulder on that front. Did it, you know, we didn't see a whole lot of it against Austin people. We saw a little bit of it, you know, did it heal that much more in a week or did it heal that much more in two weeks from the Ole Miss game? It is possible. It's certainly possible, but it just felt like that the offense, it was more so operating based off of the plays that were being called rather than Bryce Young improvising, creating, and buying more time, and, and that's how all their success was happening. It was better, better timing. Everything was just operating a lot more smoothly against Auburn this past weekend. And it, it, if it's Bryce Young's shoulder, it's super unfortunate because everybody will play the what-if game, and, and Alabama fans already do that with the, re the receiver injuries last year. 
you know, what's funny is, is if Bryce doesn't get hurt and those receivers don't get hurt for Alabama, we could be talking about Alabama winning three straight national titles. I mean, I, I think that, that there, there's still a ton of problems on this team. Don't get me wrong, but uh, it's possible. And, and then we're not talking about the dynasty being dead or whatever. Bill O'Brien's probably getting his pick of the litter as far as, you know, college or NFL jobs that he wants because he's coached two dynamic offenses. And and it's funny how things work out that way. But it, it does kind of feel like that the more that they were willing to take shots downfield and really try to test defenses deep, it opened up the run game. Bryce Young's legs in this game opened up the run game for the running backs more. It's not like they put up just eye-popping numbers by any means, even close. But guys did extremely well. They all averaged four or five yards a carry. The running backs did. And you saw consistently moving the football, and they put up four touchdowns on the ground. Yeah. Uh, and, and, again, I, I, I think it all goes back to Bryce's shoulder. That's what I believe. Uh, we don't we don't know that. I mean, Nick Saban and, and the Youngs, they're never going to be too forthcoming about exactly, you know, how it feels or how it's coming along. But, uh, hey, I just happened to think when Bryce got hurt and, and, and he came back protecting the shoulder, which makes all the sense in the world. And I think you have to remove some things from the playbook that, uh, that, that, you know, some pages of the playbook become ripped out because, hey, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this anymore. We have to play around what Bryce is capable of doing. I think of all of the things all season long, Clint, particularly as it relates to the offense, that impacted the offense and the performance of the offense, it's Bryce's shoulder. That's the story of this 2022 season for me on offense is Bryce's shoulder. When he was healthy, Alabama's offense was pretty good. Uh, when he wasn't healthy, we had to play Milrow and against Texas A&M. That, that, that wasn't great for four quarters. Uh, but – you know, play, play, we had to just play around Bryce's shoulder, whether it was Milrow or, or, or just having to call plays around Bryce. And I, I think it really affected things. I would just want people to remember, they say this is a defensive Bill, Bill O'Brien. I'm just stating a fact. We have to remember with all the complaints of the offense, and, and so many of them are legitimate. I'm not saying they aren't. But let's just remember this. Only four teams that play college football scored more points than Alabama in 2022. That does not sound like a situation where – the whole fan base should be universally wanting to ship out the OC. Four teams that play college football scored more points than Alabama. And if it's not about scoring points, and I don't know what the heck the game's about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Uh, and, and there was a lot of good with the offense this year, but there's just a lot of inconsistency. And I think that the inconsistency part of it is what frustrated fans, you know, when you go, you know, several drives in a row, you know, three and outs and not finding any success and just some of the decision-making as far as the play calling in certain situations down the goal line, you know, throwing the football three times, not throw or not running the football and trying to take more time off the clock against Tennessee. And that way you're set up to kick a game winning field goal. And it's like, Hey, this is either going in or, uh, you know, we're going overtime. One of those two things. It's like a lot yesterday we were watching Alabama play North Carolina in basketball and both teams, you know, those first three overtimes and really at the end of regulation as well, one team was holding the football saying, or it's in the football, they're holding the basketball saying, we're, we're taking last shot. So we're either winning this or we're going to OT uh, or we're going to second OT or third OT. And, you know, it just, it's, it's things like that. And it's all hindsight. Jameer Gibbs catches that pass against Tennessee, brilliant play call. Now they're in really good position. 
it's just it, a lot of things didn't bounce their way. I feel like a lot of things did bounce their way against Auburn, and it worked out. But just, uh, you know, as Bryce has gotten healthier and he's been participating in all the snaps in practice and throwing the football with regularity, I don't think it's coincidence that week over week, you know, Ole Miss is really where it started with Jermaine Burton, but then against uh, Austin P. That continued, and from a production standpoint, he was more productive in that game than he was against Auburn or against Ole Miss, but I feel like he was even more on the same page with Bryce and played even better against Auburn, even though statistically three catches for 87 yards on six targets. I just thought that, you know, he looks confident, he looks comfortable, and he is getting better week over week, and I don't think it's coincidence that that has continued to be the case as he's gotten more comfortable in being in Alabama's environment and culture and all those things but now he's actually got a quarterback that he's getting to work with and practice on a regular basis throwing the football. So it's just, it's unfortunate, but that there is no excuse. Some of these things happen. You know, Tennessee lost their starting quarterback against uh, South Carolina. Teams lose good players all the time. Uh, Alabama lost to a Tunga Valoa in 2019, turned to Mac Jones, and the offense barely missed a beat. So, there's two ways to handle it when injuries happen, and you can't always make an excuse. But I do think that it impacted it, and I think anybody would be foolish if they tried to dispute that. But what I will say about Bill O'Brien, what I will say about Alabama, offensively, defensively, I saw them trying to make changes against Auburn. Like whether it be an offensive philosophy and the things that you were throwing in there and trying, that was new, and to me it worked. You saw them finally say, Cameron Latou, we love you to death. You're a great inline blocker. You're a great pass catcher, but you're not very good at blocking out on the perimeter. You're not good blocking in space. Let's put Robbie Utes out there, give him an opportunity, and see if he's better. And he was better. And so that worked. You look at Yeah, you know, you look at the defensive side. We saw after Jamil Burroughs and Jamirian Latham had both been like sub package package specific players in certain situations, you saw them more in the regular rotation where they were coming out there for the first down of a drive and staying out there for the entirety of the drive. And you saw, you know, Jameer Latham in particular, a lot of his snaps outside of the Mississippi state game were there, you know, they were missing a lot of defensive linemen and it was more so out of necessity. A lot of his snaps were coming as an interior defensive lineman in situations like the cheetah packages and stuff like that against Auburn and really in the last couple of weeks he's been playing out on the edge a lot more and and they're losing Byron Young they're probably going to lose Justin DeBoyby both of those guys have the ability to play inside and out I think that versatility is very important in Alabama's defense and they're looking for that next guy and they gave him more opportunities against Auburn and I thought he played pretty well he sniffed out a screen second week in a row looked great on that front um so I just felt like that all the changes that Alabama attempted which were different did they put Jalen Moody out there? No. Deontay Lawson got the start, despite the fact that this is Jalen Moody's last game inside Bryant-Denny Stadium. Did Jalen Moody, I don't know if it was injury-related. I don't think so. Maybe I missed something. Uh, but at the end of the game, it was Sean Murphy who was coming in in relief. It was not Jalen Moody. And Deontay Lawson played a huge percentage of the snaps. That's making changes that you feel like is for the betterment of your team and all that stuff seemed to pay off. I didn't see anything on tape that's like they tried to switch it up and they looked worse. Uh, Kendrick Law started the second half at receiver. He had been involved in the rotation, but he hadn't started a half or a game. And I thought he played really well. So, Jimmy, what did you think about some of the changes and, and adjustments that Alabama made? 
And was it as encouraging to you as it was me? Play for sure. I love the, the big play Kendrick Law made in the second half is like, that's what the wide receiver core has been missing is just someone who can make a play. It's not all doesn't have to be Bryce delivering the ball in a tight window and making an impossible play or backyard football. What I wanted to see was an outside receiver catch a ball and then make a play. Cause then it's not about Bryce. You know, once you've caught the ball and you've turned up field now make a play. And that's where those guys have been uh, really, really lacking that last year, you know, they weren't because of Mechie and JMO so good with the ball after the catch. Uh, these guys really weren't, uh, but we saw some of it on Saturday. So, uh, yeah, I like the, the wrinkles on offense. Defensively, I'm just, I just can't get away from giving up all those rushing yards, uh, you know, whether that was a mistake. I, you know, I didn't like – it seemed to me what, what I what I'm really want to focus on myself on the rewatch, it seemed live that there were some snaps, but not many – where Alabama spied Robbie Ashford. It, 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 it looked to me like there was a lot of blitzes and then a lot of DBs, you know, dropping back, leaving the middle of the field wide open and undefended. Uh, that, that's kind of what it looked like live. Now, I think when I watch the tape, I'm going to see things differently when I slow it down and rewind, you know, each play a time or two. Um, and and I, so I expect to learn quite a bit from watching the rewatch, but it just, you know, it stood out to me, Clint, that again, you know, uh, I, I could be wrong about this, but it's just my take on it. It seemed like we did we spied Hendon Hooker a lot, and uh, while he, while that led helped lead him to those great passing numbers, he didn't hurt us with his legs very much because Lawson did such a good job as the spy on Hooker. And then you play LSU and Auburn, who have quarterbacks who run the ball even more so than Hooker, and it's like we didn't spy those guys. And they both had monster games on the ground against Alabama. So that's really confusing to me. Uh, but again, uh, I, I got to watch, watch the, uh, the rewatch, you know, with, uh, with everybody else and everybody can follow that on the board. Cause I'm, I'm anxious to see things differently, but that was just my take, you know, live. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I think the, one of the biggest matchups going in that I thought would decide how this game turned out. And I wrote about it was Auburn's, defensive front versus Alabama's offensive front and just you know in last year's matchup Bryce Young was running for his life you know sacked what was it seven times he was hit I mean I want to say it was like some absurd number like 30 pressures or something in that game there was two quarterback hurries from Auburn on Saturday and there was zero sacks allowed so them being the offensive line being able to keep Bryce Young adequately protected I thought was a significant difference in why you saw 49 to 27 compared to why you saw a four overtime two point win from Alabama last year. And what's, what's unfortunate is I think that if you put Bryce young last year, because he was healthy with Alabama's receivers last year with this year's running backs and this year's offensive line, this Alabama offense would have been unstoppable. I don't care who the play caller was, wouldn't have mattered. I mean, it, it would have been impossible to stop. I, I give Eric Wolford a ton of credit for the improvement and the strides the offensive line made. I think everybody just expected them, hey, we got a new coach, we got talent. They're going to go from being one of the worst offensive lines in the SEC to one of the, the best in the country in one year. I think it's going to take a little bit more time than that. But, Jimmy, one thing that I, I said multiple times during the offseason that – you know, it has changed 
was last year. I looked at where guys were at in game one and where they were at in game 15 when Alabama played Georgia in the national title. And I couldn't tell you one offensive lineman that I thought was significantly better and made any sort of significant growth from game one to game 15. I can say there have been multiple players who have shown growth from game one to game 12 so far this year. And as long as that's happening, I feel really encouraged about Eric Wolford, and I feel really encouraged about where the offensive line's going moving forward. Couldn't, couldn't agree more, and I, and I think next year, look, it's not going to be 2020. It's not going to be 2012. But I think because of that growth that you're talking about, Clint, I think next year's offensive line has the chance to be the best one since 2020. You know, much better than this year, which was pretty good. Certainly better than last year, which was really bad. But it, it should be the best with – Hopefully, as we would project today, uh, the core of uh, Seth McLaughlin, Javion Cohen, Tyler Booker, and J.C. Latham returning, those four looking for a fifth guy, might be Pritchett, might be Kite, might be a guy from the portal, uh, could be a freshman, although I doubt it. Uh, but I think it will be Elijah Pritchett. And and, and the, I think it could be the best offensive line since 2020 and on the road back to where Alabama needs to be at the line of scrimmage on that side of the ball. Um, they just got to continue to make the same strides they made this year. Hey, Landon Dickerson, Jedrick Wills especially, you know, Alex Leatherwood, just dogs on the offensive line, just played pissed off and mean all the time. And you get that from J.C. Latham a lot. You certainly get that from Tyler Booker. And I think Elijah Preachett has a ton of that in him as well. If you end up with right. those three guys as your starters next year, you know, I think Seth McLaughlin needs to make significant strides and improvement, you know, with snap location and, you know, the consistency on that front and just the consistency in a lot of other areas. But if you get that really smart, intelligent center who knows what he's supposed to do and kind of, you know, operate things um, effectively, and then you've got some of those dogs everywhere else. Yeah, I think this offensive line's got a chance to be really, really good. But it's just last year didn't see a whole lot of dogs. Even like an Evan Neal, great player. Was he just like a mean offensive lineman? No, nah, he just was a, a freak of nature compared to everybody else. And that certainly is important too. Uh, that's not a knock on him at all. Top, you know, number seven pick in the, in the draft. But I think just I love the Jedrick Wills style of player that just played nasty. And I think that Tyler Booker's showing that. I think J.C. Latham could show a little bit more, but I do think you get a lot of that and you get elite pass protection. And I think that you would certainly get that from Elijah Pritchett as well should he become a starter. So that's very encouraging. It's a great start for a lot of uh, a lot of these guys. So, Jimmy, only got a couple of minutes left. This podcast went really long today. We combined two and then just transfer portal in Auburn recap. We ran with it. But as always, brother, I appreciate you hopping on here with me. That was great, and uh, I hope everybody enjoys this. I hope everybody tunes in next week because next Monday's show, I mean, you know, we, we'll try not to portal you all to death, but it will be the story. And uh, like we said, three Alabama players in the portal right now and counting. Uh, by the time we record next Monday, how many will I be? I don't know. I, I think it's going to be a lot, and I think there's going to be some general panic out there, and we'll do our best to talk everyone off the ledge. Just remember what's going on in Alabama is, is also what's going on everywhere else. Uh, you know, it's going to affect Alabama the same way it affects all the other teams. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great point, man. Uh, as always, we appreciate everybody listening in to this podcast. Uh, we'll be back again same time next week. And now that we don't have as much game stuff going on, maybe we can turn this into a bi-weekly thing. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, as always, Jimmy, I appreciate you hopping on here with me, and we will talk again soon. Once again, this is the Bam on 3 Show, and I'm your host, Clint Lamb.